You're tuned in to KEPWLP 97.3 FM in Eugene, Oregon. PeaceWorks Independent Community Radio, also streaming online at KEPW.org. Now we gathered here on the universe at this time, this particular time, to listen to the 36 black notes of the piano. There's 36 black notes and 52 white notes. We don't mean to eliminate nothing, but we're gonna just hear the black notes at this time, if you don't mind. You're listening to Black Girl from Eugene with Aisha. Aisha, we're here on Facebook Live, and I am here with Catherine Reed, and I'm going to read a little bio for her, and then we'll jump right into the conversation, because we have a lot to pack into one hour. Um, she'll definitely be a guest that we'll have on repeat. Anyway, so here we go. Catherine Reed, MD, is a board-certified psychiatrist who was born in Chicago, Illinois, and raised mostly in Eugene, Oregon. She is the CEO and president of Peninsula Mental Health, located in Menlo Park, California. After graduating from the University of California at Berkeley, she completed medical school at Howard University College of Medicine, where she received the Charles Pendehues Award in Psychiatry. She finished her internship and residency training at San Mateo County Hospital, where she was chief resident and, she, and the recipient of the Psychiatry Minority Residence in Training Award. She is married and is a mother of two awesome boys, ages 9 and 12. She is also writing a book and planning to adopt a kitten and a puppy. Hey, Catherine. Hey, how are you? I'm really, really good. How are you? Great. Yay. I'm excited to be here. Okay. We already have a comment that says, good morning, ladies. Good morning, Cassie. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So this this episode, we have promised the people that we will be talking about mental health around the holidays and micro living with microaggressions and um and microaggressions around the holidays. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, I I love that we did your bio so that people understand that this is this is um personal experience, but it's also you are a psychiatrist and a um a hardworking. Uh, psychiatrist at that. So I want to start off with what brought you to psychiatry? So um, it's interesting because when I was in medical school, the the last thing I wanted to do was be a psychiatrist. I thought I was going to go into sports medicine. Oh, but yeah. So that was the plan from the beginning was to be a sports medicine doctor. Yeah. And I had it all mapped out. But um but I had always had an interest in psychology because my mom always had Psychology Today magazines all around the house, which I read thoroughly. So I always had that going in the background. But um, I was really into sports. And um, so I wanted to be a sports medicine doctor. I wanted to be like a team doctor to one of the, you know, basketball teams, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. the NBA or whatever it was, or one of the track teams or something. But um that I ended up changing my mind because it would have meant an extra three years oh. in internal medicine. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I couldn't deal with the smells in internal medicine. That's I have a very sensitive <laughs> sense of smell. So that one didn't work out. So then I thought I was going to go into emergency medicine. So I was all set for emergency medicine and then found out that um, the hours are not very friendly, that basically you're going to be working nights for the first 10 years and that did not appeal to me right. so <clears throat> and then I thought I would probably just end up writing books and not even do a residency program I didn't know what I was going to do right but then a friend a friend convinced me to join her um uh in a psychiatry rotation during oh, okay. my fourth year my last year of med school yeah and it was this like Alfred Hitchcock situation it was St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the oldest psychiatric hospital in the U.S. Wow. And, um, yeah, so it was this huge sprawling grounds with well-kempt lawns and um, mist rising up from the ground, enshrouding the buildings. 
Um, and, and then the whole place reeked of urine and bleach and they oh. have the huge, <laughs> those oh. huge skeleton keys that you see in the movies. They yeah. still had those wow. to open these doors that were like six inches thick, solid metal doors. Um, Dang. yeah, that's, like, it was, a, that's be, like serious institution, like old school you read about in Twilight Zone. <laughs> watching Twilight. That's crazy. And that's, that's where you did your you did your rotation there. That's where I did my first psychiatric rotation. Um, I, I ended up doing a second one in adolescent psychiatry in North Carolina. But yeah. that was the first one I did. And and it it changed my mind. I It was just like being on a movie set. It was so surreal. But wow. there was a patient there that um, she ended up being the one to inspire my logo and my website and everything because she was describing coming out of the maze of her psychosis being on these medications. And so like week by week, she was slowly coming out of this maze and she was describing it in great detail. And it was so fascinating. Wow. <clears throat> that, um, and then she came out of the maze. She like came back and it was this amazing transformation and wow. um, it, it was really incredible it's, to watch. It, there's so much in that, what you just said to unpack, like there's so much. And just the idea that like, um, first of all, that you changed your mind through med- I didn't realize you could like have that much changing going on while you're in medical <laughs> school to the last freaking minute. <laughs> That's so funny. And then um, of course uh, the fact that it was this kind of calling to you, like this surreal picturesque, like, this is where the mysticism, this is where it's at. This is where you're connected to. And then you just went from there. That's amazing. And so now you have your own practice um, in California doing your own thing, which, by the way, congratulations, because that Thank just you. happened in the last few years, right? Yeah. As of late March 2018, that's when I opened up the private practice. I had been working for other people up until that point. Wow. That is amazing. I, and honestly, because I think a lot of people don't know and understand there's black women uh, are, are do we're doing things out here. <laughs> and, you know, and when people want to uh, to be heard and seen, it's like we actually you and I talked about these kind of microaggressions uh, or just having that representation when everywhere in the world like that we looking for black owned anything. It's it's out there. And so for you to have. Um, you know, a psychiatry office, black owned and ran by a woman, black woman. It's amazing. I think we should celebrate. I think it should be known, like spread wide and far <laughs> that you're available <laughs> to be seen because um, like what we were talking about when we we're going to get into the microaggressions idea um, is that like, it's very hard to find someone who can relate to you. And when you are and um, something is as vulnerable as psychiatry to have a woman of color be able to guide you through that when you are a person of color, I think it's very, I don't know that I, I, in my experience, I've only met one other black woman that was. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she wasn't a psychiatrist. She was just a, a not just a, but she was a counselor um, and she, like a licensed counselor, but she didn't have, like, she wasn't a doctor, so she couldn't prescribe or anything like that. But um yeah, I've only met one other, you know, and um, but therapy is very important. Not therapy, just medication. therapy is everything, uh-huh. and that's another <laughs> that's another conversation to have for the black community because therapy in the black community is kind of not um, as accepted as we would like it to be, uh, or you know, as as a go to when things get hard and dark and rough. So I think. Right. Um, so we were talking. We we're talking about the microaggressions. We you grew up in Eugene, right? Yes. Yeah, but you're from Chicago. How? When did you move from Chicago? So I was less than two years old when we okay. moved uh, from Chicago to Eugene. Okay. And then we spent um, almost every summer in Chicago until I was 13 years old. Right. So at least a month in Chicago, sometimes more. And then at one point, my mom wanted to move back to Chicago. So we spent I don't know, three or four months there mm-hmm. before she decided to actually come back to Eugene. Okay. But I was, I was pretty young. I think I might've been around three. Yeah. She can correct that. But yeah. <laughs> She'll be texting. I think like, I was no, around honey, three at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So now I talk about on the show and on my podcast quite a bit about growing up in Eugene. Um, and a lot of people, I get well, well intended white folks that 
are like, oh, I'm so sorry you went through that. And I'm so sorry that all that happened to you. And I'm so sorry it continues to happen to you. And it's always very apologetic, which, you know, I get because we grew up here. I kind of I understand their intention. Um, But the microaggressions that we both experienced as being uh, women of color in Eugene or growing up here. Um, you're just a little bit older than older than me, so you ex- still experience the same thing I experienced when I grew up. Was that being like the only black girl anywhere? Um, I my kids don't. They actually have other black kids in their classrooms. Not a lot, like maybe two or three, but that's way more than either you you or I experienced, right? Um, right. Yeah. So they have a little context. So the we were talking about how these microaggressions. I tend, and I think a lot of successful black folks who have come out of Eugene not as wounded <laughs> as as we could be have you turned yeah. those microaggressions into um a driving point so when you grew up here did you allow the microaggressions to drive you hold you back or um or lead you to explore mental health i guess you didn't mental it wasn't a part of mental health for you at that point but um how did you how did you use what you experienced here and what did you experience that moved you on into your, into your drive. Cause it's incredible. Oh, well, thank you. But so, um, in the beginning, basically it had a very severe impact on my self-esteem. Yeah. So, um, because, you know, I was a little kid. So, um, some of the microaggressions that, that people tend to get people of color, if you're in a dominant, um, a majority white environment. And this could be the case for any type of person. It could be for a white person in a predominantly um, black environment mm-hmm. or Latino environment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Latinx, excuse me, environment. Um, so in our case, it just so happened that we were people of color in a predominantly white environment. Right. And um, so when you're, so there's all different types of microaggressions that happen, but the and I don't know if you want to get into the detail of some of those or just yeah, kind of like the effect it, it had. Let's jump. Uh, okay, let's go. <laughs> so you know, and these are micro, not macro, because there were many macroaggressions as well. Right. But the microaggressions are the more subtle things that happen. That um, so people, you know, when the, they would talk about me in the third person, I'm sure that this happened to you too. Um, you know, you're standing there in a, with a group of people, but it's as if you don't really exist. And so you're being talked about in the third person, like, well, okay, I'll, I'll choose the black girl on my team or, well, she's black. So she must know blah, 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 or, you know, well, okay. So that's one thing. And then, um, so you're always seen through the lens of other or different mm-hmm. so that you're not really being accepted fully for who you are as a whole person. Mm-hmm. And the people around you often don't take the time to get to know you or find out who you actually are. Right. You're always held at arm's length and often put into like a stereotypical box. So you've right. got these external expectations placed upon you. Um, and so it's like you don't fully exist yeah. But at the same time, you represent all black people. So it's it's kind of funny because I'm um, multiracial. So, right. you know, most people just limit it to biracial. They wouldn't count the Native American part. Right. But um, so being biracial and lighter skinned, when I go out into the world now, people are often like, well, how could any of that have happened to you? I mean, you know, you're so light, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. How could you? But the thing to remember about the history of this country is we've got something called the one drop rule. Right. Um, And so I'm not going to get into the details of that. You can look that up if you don't, if you're not aware of it. Right. Well, (laughs) um... I'm going to cap it really quickly. They just, you know, people would consider that you, if you had what, I think it was a, is the paper, is the paper, what was it? Where the skin? Where you? If you could see your vein through your wrist, then you could pass or something like that. But well, that's, that's not the one blue drop. blood. That's yeah, that's a little different. But okay. basically, if you can tell a person has any African ancestry at all, at all. by looking at them, then they're just automatically labeled black. as black. Yeah. Okay. So when I was growing up, Eugene, I was not labeled as mixed. I was just called black, and right. everything else that goes along with it the n-word all that kind of stuff um and so it's you know when 
when you're not when when that happens to you as a kid, you don't really have unless you're unless you're in an environment where it's talked about a lot mm-hmm. and you know the the child is taught how to deal with it, mm-hmm. um, which is not usually the case. Um, then you tend to internalize it. So that's what happened with me. At first, I internalized all of the um, the marginalization and whatnot, and um, and kind of racist sort of attitudes and just kind of blame myself for it. Right. And it, so it had a, a pretty profound impact on my self-esteem. Now I, I was super lucky though, because I had, um, I had uh, two teachers of color that at different points during my grade school years who took me under their wing. They totally understood what I was going through. Yeah. They went above and beyond and they, you know, um, and not only that, but I had um, some close friends who happened to be white um, and also some some white adults who were very understanding, open minded, super supportive. Uh-huh. And unlike most of the white adults, they were not afraid to talk to me directly about what was going on and ask me questions because the majority of them were they were too uncomfortable. Right. To even broach the topic. Right. And um, so they just didn't want to deal with it. Right. And then they they put it off onto the child unknowingly saying, you know, like, well, like, I'm sure they didn't mean that. I'm sure it wasn't really that bad or just ignore them. Like, just keep walking the other way. Be the bigger person type of thing. And that that is um, is not only is it toxic it's damaging beyond beyond reprehensive damage <laughs> when you dismiss well, right. a child's experience uh, or something as as fragile <clears throat> as their identity and self worth. Um, and you know, I think a lot the microaggression part of it is that that is a perfect description of microaggression. When you say, "Was it that bad?" or "Are you sure it wasn't you?" that like, are you you're kind of looking into that a little. You know, are you you're always thinking about race? Maybe you put it onto it. Like maybe you're adding the racial um, component, and they didn't even mean it that way. Like there's, there's... well, right? Because that's invalidation, right? So what you're describing is invalidation of your racial experiences, mm-hmm. um, um, and questioning the the actual experience of being marginalized, right? So you know. Exactly. So it's being told that you are the one who's confused, that your experiences aren't really happening to you, that you're making it up mm-hmm. and and that you're being overly focused on race. Like, why do black people constantly talk about race? Right. You know, because it's why constantly are you... happening. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, it's right, there but, every day. <laughs> yes. And then but the effect that it has on kids and even adults, because a lot of people don't deal with this for their entire lifespan so if it if these things happen to you in your childhood um and you don't deal with it it causes you to question your self-worth and then to not trust your own perceptions of what's actually going on right and then you end up feeling really isolated and misunderstood and that can actually lead to mental health symptoms right you know you know most often depression and um feeling suicidal yeah and the thing i think that People don't put enough um, like knowledge and emphasis on the idea that these microaggressions aren't something. It's not macro. It's not being called the N word directly. Like it's it's being uh, you know followed. Which in, is also terrible, by the way. Right. But. Which is also terrible. But it's uh, which <laughs> yeah. is not a good thing. Um, but, <laughs> but but it's one of those things where like um, like for instance, a friend of mine, she was. Um, we we're always laughing about like not shopping at this particular store. And um, and I don't want to say it because I don't know how the rules are on the radio. But um, she she went into this store and uh, was looking for decorations for her house. And she knew as soon as she got into the store that she was being followed. That yeah. is a microaggression. It's not. It's yes. something that when we live through every day, we recognize immediately. 
um, when when you're not when you're being treated that way, or or like she was being followed and she was really upset because her kids were like were like super anxious that day, or like not anxious but like energetic and they were running all over the place. So she was like, oh god, now we're that black people in the store and we're already being followed. <laughs> you know, my children are acting crazy, yeah. so we're gonna get that extra, you know, like look over the shoulder because we're black and they're not behaving perfectly. You know, and so um, that's microaggression. <laughs> Or, you know, when you're going out and you're like, you're the black girl with all your friends for the holiday parties and someone's like, wow, you know, you look really pretty, you know, for like a black girl. (laughs) Yes, you look really pretty for a black girl. (laughs) That's a big one. That is the, the, to me, I'm always like, why don't you just stop? You look really pretty, (laughs) period. (laughs) Like, like, why for the black girl? You know what I mean? Why? Why did you go that extra mile? You know, um, I think people and I don't know. It's I guess it's hard because I we have to sometimes as black women or black people um, really uh, negotiate the conversation, negotiate the experience before we get there for all kinds of reasons, because the microaggressions, because our coping skills, it's another coping mechanism um, to get through living every day having to dance around all of these things so that they don't pierce you. But like what you were saying, it, it's kind of like constantly, it's kind of like being worn down. You you can do it for a little while and it's like, okay, it's it stings, it stings, it stings. But then if that, that one thing is just hitting you, hitting you constantly, it, start, it begins to wear you down, even to the point at, to, at some cases, like you said, to mental crisis. And, and I think, um, you know, the identity crisis that happens... Um, for people who are black living in a place or people of color living in a place where you're not, there's no dominant community for you. The dominant community is, is white. That, that um, identity crisis is prevalent, which I don't know is considered a mental health crisis or is it, what is that considered a mental health crisis? Like identity, like having that, that conflict. Um, I mean, it's not a, like diagnosed. Well, I mean, it can lead to a mental health crisis, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because it can destabilize you and give you such a shaky sense of self and not trusting your own experiences and your own, you know, your own reality. Because right. you're, because it's being, it, it's constantly being negated and denied and invalidated. Right, 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 right. right. So, so then it, I mean... Yeah. yeah, you have to learn over time to trust yourself, or if things are proven correct, right. right? But that takes time, and some people never get to that point. Right. So around the holidays, the microaggressions around the holidays, in particular as a person of color, um, I don't know that when I just as I wrote that down and I was thinking about it, I don't. I'm I'm thinking about like my my year round situation dealing with microaggressions and then it being particularly when it when it gets to being too much uh, when we can't negotiate anymore uh, when those conversations get to be where you just can't you just can't have it anymore like you're just like I can't do this oh it's okay oh don't worry about it you know those type of where we where we apologize where we're apologizing for their inept. <laughs> Rachel, uh, you know, uh, well, you, you've had some experiences in that area, right? Oh God. In Eugene. I, I, yes, I, and I have, I have several friends and I have one particular friend now who we all get to the point where we're like, we have to leave. You get to this point where you're like, if I don't leave, I have to save myself. If I don't save myself, um, like I cannot get out of here. Or I'm going to, like, I'm going to go crazy. Like, you can hear and feel a limit of where you can actually, um, where you can actually, like, take it another day. And so, like, so I... So, are was, you talking Are you talking about, like, experiences with holiday shopping? Like, being followed around in stores and having people approach you repeatedly saying, can I help you with something? But with a frantic kind of an attitude and fear in their eyes or... or you know, letting you know that they're watching you or what, what do you mean? Like in particular um, around the holidays, uh, uh, particularly around the holidays. Well, what I mean is like, um, well, when we get, it's not necessarily around the holidays. It's just a point of, of a point of contention that you get to after having the microaggressions get to you for so long that you can no longer deal. 
And so you're like, it, and people look at you crazy because there's the macro is not obvious. But I mean, the micro is not obvious and the macro is. So you, right. But you, you're talking about like a cumulative, a effect. cumulative effect of microaggressions. And I got to that point, you know, last year and, um, where it was tons of stuff, not just microaggressions of racial, um, uh, you know, components, but it was, it, it also was just a feeling of invalidation, the feeling of being invisible, you're working so hard to be seen and you're working so hard to be, to be seen in your own character, not for your skin, but like your own character, the worth, the education, the, the, what the value that you put to things and you're constantly being shut down by uh, the micro, by microaggression. And that at that point, like I said, I have a f- couple friends here or we're like, we're willing to, to drop everything and leave so that we can like breathe and, and gain strength again so that we can deal another day. Like I had the opportunity to leave to Texas and all right. I was going to say you actually did leave. I did. I did. I left. So now what are some ways that you um, coped with it and are when I left this time around? um, Well, this time around, I, I have to say I'm much older than the last time I had to leave. And, and I I think black folks here, if you don't get out and see the world, you, you do end up being kind of that fish in the tank where you're like looking at the bubbles going, Oh, look bubbles. Like you really have to like get out. (laughs) And so that you can breathe. Um, and so I, when I, the last time I got out, uh, it was, um, it was when I was much younger. Now I got out, um, again and this time around being older, the way I coped with it was actually looking at myself and then I started to talk to think more about my my how much I gave away in a compromising uh, like in order to compromise, like how much I actually gave to people who were giving me who were putting those microaggressions onto me so that I could get through the day. Like I actually compromised a lot of my own self-value so that I could just make it through the day. So the way right. that I yeah, so the way that I learned um, was me. Like I had to have much stronger boundaries. I had to remember that my value, um, I, my value is not based on even my job, you know, evaluations, even how much, how many committees I'm on. My value did not come from what other, what the white folks around me gave to me. Like I, and another thing was I had to really convince myself that there was no reason for me to fit in. Like, I didn't have to fit in anywhere I went. Like, I was okay the way I was regardless. Like, I could be the purple girl in the sea of of blue people and be okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so that, and it really took a lot of meditation. And it really took a lot of just self-talk, self-love and compassion and just growth. Like, I really had to have this growth in me that said, I don't need it. Like there's no, I have enough within myself. Like I had to convince myself of that. But I also like you, like you, I have people as I grew up, I had you, I had like, it's so funny. I think uh, one of the teachers that you're talking about that you grew up with, are they um, the same teacher that I had? Like you and I know this teacher. Uh, Were you talking about her or not? Do you know who I'm talking about? (laughs) I don't want to say her Um, name because I didn't ask her first. (laughs) I'm not sure, but I had two teachers in particular um, who were incredibly helpful to me and kind of helped restore some self-esteem issues yeah. and um, overrode some of the academic um, roadblocks that were placed in my way. Um, you know, because when you're, uh, oftentimes when you're a person of color in a predominantly white environment, especially if you're of African ancestry, um, the expectation is that you're going to do very poorly in school. Right. So that was one of the things that you, you said, how did you asked me earlier, how did you, um, how did the microaggressions affect you? Well, at first they kind of held me back. And then later on, I, um, I knew that I was smart right. and that it wasn't, wasn't true. So I felt like I had to, um, um, go overboard to get like straight A's and prove everybody yes. wrong and prove, prove that I had the right to be, you know, doing what I was doing. Right. And so that was, that's how it kind of, then it went overboard into like trying to prove everybody wrong. Right. 
Because I was actually told that, well, because you're black, you're not going to be able to go to medical school or you you can't be in AP English and I'm not going to write you um, a recommendation for AP English, even though you got an A in my class. Not going to happen. That, you're not going to be able to handle the academic yes, load because you're black. Yes. Yes, that you just sent, you just said, you just touched it on the nose of a microaggression parents, especially parents who are not of color to children who are of color. Don't pick that one up hardly ever. But that child knows, you know, they know like that happened to that happened to Barbara at uh, a, a school here. It happened. Your to, daughter. Oh yeah, it happened to Jasmine. I went against the whole 4J school district again for Jasmine. <laughs> the whole you have to was, you have to put in extra protections as a parent. Yes, um, you have to be looking out for this. So that's another. That is definitely another thing that needs to happen. But it's a microaggression. Um, it's like when you're. Well, yes. When, yeah, when you're it told um, you have an A in her class, but you're not going to go to the adva- why for what? Like that's and then you spot as a little girl, you go okay. Walking away with your head down, knowing that you did the best of the work, you know, and you've done all of the work <laughs> and you yet don't get to advance forward. Yeah. It's kind of like the idea that all black black folks always say we have to do 110 percent versus the the 95 percent other people have to do. You know what I mean? Um, but you embodied that and you took it as a positive and you moved forward with it. Um, but you said you went overboard with it. <laughs> Well, I felt like I had to because I had something to prove, right? I, right. And now some of these teachers were, were excellent, and they they did not have that attitude with me, and those are the two teachers in particular that I'm talking about. Right. Um, but there was one teacher that uh, he, I guess he was in charge of the GATE program, the Gifted and Talented program. Yeah. And, <laughs> and his explanation to me, the way he explained it to me, was because I didn't get a perfect score in the math portion of the test, Yeah. but I I I did in the English that that's why he was keeping me out of the program. But some of my friends got lower scores than I did. Now, this might have been false information. Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but this is how it was explained to me as a kid, Mm -hmm. that that's why he was keeping me out of the program. Yeah. See, and those because I, I miss one point on the math. I mean, this is how it was explained to me. Right, right. Whether or not this is the true explanation, who knows? But that's why that's how he explained it to me. So just stuff like that just made me want to go a bit overboard. Um, right. With it. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, so and that- I wouldn't change it. Now the other thing is, like, people say, um, "Oh, well, that must have been so difficult." Blah blah blah. You know, but. But even looking back, I wouldn't change anything because it helped shape who I am now. And it gave me like a broader understanding of the world. You know, so even though it was those things were very difficult, I still would not change my situation, if that makes sense. Right, right, right. Well, you're someone who has overcome from those those uh, aggressions. And I think that it's always a life process. Like we, we have more, you and I talked about having a couple more podcasts or at least another podcast to do it, talking about the, the work that we have done, both of us, ju- and, and we are still doing to get over some of that weight or just understanding um, what we have gone through to get to where we are and just how prevalent it is uh, for women, uh, for children, people, families of color um, in this situation and to know that you definitely can over overcome those things so it's it's just taking uh it like it takes a lot of coping it takes a lot of people to support it takes you knowing that you you have um something else than what you've been told but i think there's always like what you said there's that inside voice that you just like you said i knew i was smart like i knew i got like me i'm like i knew i had the right answer like you know what i mean like i knew yeah. I, I was more than what they were saying even that they said it all the time i knew i was like they just don't know you know what I mean? And um, yeah, so and I don't know that all the kids are like that. I know that I was. I know that you were. But all the children don't necessarily have that. Like, mm, I think this doesn't quite sound right. So um, so I'm going to we're going to move on to the the uh, the practices we were going to. I wanted to talk about mental health crisis and, and family toxicity, uh, the daily practices that you and I both have used to get through uh, certain um, like just blocks and uh, and 
I'm trying to think of the word now, just kind of go through these hard times, especially around the holidays. I, I, I especially wanted to do this, this conversation with you because of your expertise and because the holidays seem to be such a hard time of year for people. Um, not to say that that doesn't happen, but I guess that's a question that I want to ask you around the a year year round in your own personal practice. Like, where do you see the spikes in mental health uh, crisis? So interestingly, um, oftentimes in the springtime for people who have bipolar disorder. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, my colleagues and I have talked about this just informally that a lot of us see spikes in mania and hypomania in people who have bipolar disorder around the springtime. And then in the fall and winter, um, oftentimes uh, there is a rise in depression. Um, You've got the shorter days, uh, darker days and holidays. Right. Right, in right, the fall right. and winter, yeah, that tend to, um, for various reasons, people can have a lot of difficulty during those times. Right. Okay. So, um, where, where but do you... mental, but mental health symptoms can occur at any time of year. Got to put that one out there. Right. You're like, yeah. let me just I mean, say this. Not... No, totally, yeah. totally. I think I want I want people to understand that, like the conversation we're having is is this is generalization. Like this absolutely is about. The holidays, but of course, mental health is an issue all year round. I just know that the spikes around the holiday and sometimes people who don't recognize that they're having mental health issues um, have these kind of dark feelings and don't know how to describe them or where to go or what to do. And uh, they they pop up. And I, you know, and me not being the expert here, knowing that Christmas time, uh, the holiday time, you know, Hanukkah, all of these things during the during December in particular, uh, in this winter dark months just seem to be a real nationally known trigger, you know, for, for people. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think that it's people who don't recognize that they are actually suffering from mental health um, uh, issues uh, before, you know, that they like maybe it's quieter in the summertime. Maybe the mental health um, uh, position is like not as prevalent in the spring, you know, that and then and somehow it just spikes up at Christmas time. Um, so do, yeah. W- yeah. So would you, would you like recommend, like, I, I'm not, this is not like really a recommendation. I don't want you to do that, but like where, if someone was having issues during the holiday, um, and, and maybe, I mean, where, what do you think, like in your, in your history, like in your practice, in your ideas, in your mind, in your memory, do you see that people who have issues around the holiday probably have issues uh, in other places or is it generally like a it might be situational it's probably you know is it a lot of maybe the weather or maybe perhaps they've lost someone around the holiday or is it just across the board well it depends on the person i mean there are people that have year-round struggles with mental health issues and oftentimes the holidays just kind of really bring it out um and then other times it's you know they don't see their family or they don't travel to certain places that may trigger past traumas that happen around the holidays until the holidays hit. So, you know, yeah. but there are things people can do to develop more resilience right? And around that, these difficult times. So, the, so now what, what, okay, we're going to get to the solutions and the, and the boundaries really soon. Um, but I want to talk a lot about um, a little more of this uh, kind of, and it kind of leads into the microaggression part too, a little bit with the family toxicity around the holidays, like this pressure that you need to be with your family and that you, it, it is all about your family and, and, and the, we're going to go with the idea that you, well, right, an, yeah. Yeah, that you have an intact family and, all, you know, just the pressure, the societal pressure, the, yes. Yeah. That's very important. Right. Because, uh, yeah, in our culture and in many cultures around the world, there's a pressure to have a perfect family and that everyone gets along, everyone's loving, everyone's supportive. And then you all get together and have happy holidays together. And for a lot of people, that just is not the case. And so not only do they deal with the difficulty of being around certain family members over the holidays, but they have that added layer that they're, ex- that there's something wrong with them because they don't have a perfect family. Right. You know, or there's, you know, there's something wrong with their family. There's something wrong with them, but everybody else 
who's being portrayed as having this perfect family or acting it out, you know, because a lot of people are not comfortable disclosing the realities of their family challenges. Right. Um, so they feel like it's only them or their family. And so it's this added burden around holiday times. Mm. Um, and so, and oftentimes people don't know how to negotiate a toxic family situation. So not only are they feeling shame around it um, or blaming themselves for mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. um, but they don't know how to navigate it. They don't have the tools to navigate things in a healthier way and develop stronger boundaries mm -hmm. um, to protect themselves mm -hmm. during those times. Yeah. So, so and there could be like a lot of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go for it. I was going to say there's like a lot of things that can come up around holiday. So loss of family members who have passed away or absence mm -hmm. of family, um, you know, due to either death or estrangement or mm -hmm. just strained relationships, mm -hmm. like people being divided during the holidays can be difficult for people. Mm -hmm. Like some families over here and some families over there because people don't want to be together. Right. Um, and then, um, there are people who don't have family, either they don't have any family left right. or they don't have any friends or, or both. And mm -hmm. so they're really lonely and isolated. Um, and so there's this lack of social support for a lot of people that comes up. And then a lot of people are either too shy or ashamed or for whatever reason, don't want to reach out to mm -hmm. other people and let them know about their suffering. Right. So they're suffering in silence. Um, and when, you know, it, so it's it's unfortunate. And then some people, the financial stress of expectations around the holidays is too much if they can't afford it. Yeah, right. Um, right. And so, I mean, there's all these things, including, uh, you know, the current political climate. Right. Like, right. And like yeah, it's <laughs> like actually is affecting many people mental right. health wise. Right well, now. I mean, the mental stress of this for people, uh, especially in not in the most um, affluent, you know, uh, aspects of this country are, are really suffering. And the microaggression that hap that comes through the media, it comes through social media, it comes through like, you know, I drive around and seeing you know, the, the Confederate flags and the big trucks and the, the uh, it's like, Oh my God, like that really, it, it gets to you. That is a, that's a threat, you know? Um, right. But I think people of all socioeconomic backgrounds are being affected by the current political climate yeah? because, because basically um, there are microaggressions and macroaggressions toward so many different groups right now right. because of the current political climate mm -hmm. that, um, you know, whether you're identified as black or um, a person of color or Jewish or, or LGBTQ. Muslim, you know what I mean? Or yeah. L exactly. Yeah. It's like all these different groups are being impacted in a very real way right now and right. so it feels unsafe to basically the majority of the people in this country right now i think it feels unsafe to the majority <laughs> of this country right like everyone's yeah. terrified like this is yeah this is, yeah, yeah. yeah like and, it's a heightened awareness yes so it, it's a heightened and for a lot of people they're not this is a new feeling i think for people of color this is kind of a familiar this is familiar territory but right. for a lot of other people uh, and 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 for jewish people and and muslim people as well and i mean you know i can't i can't say for a lot of people i i think that for for a lot of people this is familiar territory yeah. for them just yeah. feeling unsafe in general right. in, in various uh, situations. But I think it's really being heightened now because of the political climate and yeah. it's affecting people. Right. So the family toxicity with that, with having family members that are split in that political idea and, and not. Oh, yeah. And, That's that yes. Yes. Like that. That is so heartbreaking in so many ways because you have to really negotiate a very tender line. And I mean, because some people just can't negotiate this at all. And being uh, a supporter of a particular party right now feels like it, it's not really a choice. It's like you're choosing kind of, you know, it's as serious as death and for certain people. And so it's like, how do you negotiate that around people that you love? And you're like, how, what? You know, and um, I, I think 
not to make it worse than anything else, but you're right. Like that's a really, a really considerate thought is that right now in this political climate on top of the family toxicity that you already have, you, there may be an added addition <laughs> to, you know, to that with this political background in it, especially if the family is not in one with one idea. Oh Lord. So, um, I just think about like, I'm just like in my mind, like thinking about being around or trying to be around your family and not having it go well <laughs> for the holidays. And it's not, you know, it's just one of those things. Like, how do you do this? So, so the solutions and the boundaries that you spoke about, what are some suggestions? Like, I can tell you some suggestions that I've done. My family, I'm very blessed. I, we don't have uh, a toxic family dynamic, although there's definitely no family is perfect and we definitely have disagreements in our, within our family. And we definitely have different personalities and different thought processes, And of course, right. Um, yeah, we disagree on stuff. We don't like how some people behave like, you know, whatever. And so we do those things and then we, we, we deal with them. But my family is a very, we're, we are, there's, it's big. So we talk about each other to each other quite a bit. And it always comes back around. We are lucky to have my, my mother and my father still be alive today and they're in their 80s, 70s and 80s. And so we can still can like confer with them and, you know, get guidance. And and so we have we're lucky that way. Um, and it's still not perfect. Like we still got issues like people. We still have, you know, uh, behavior that we have to work through and talk about and and do those type of things. So I so I've learned what what are some of your suggestions in, in your practice that you have around solutions of family toxicity and, and, and boundaries and coping skills? So, yeah, so developing stronger resilience and coping strategies. That's a big one. So, um, and then, I mean, before I get into that, I also want to touch on what you had brought up a little bit earlier about cultural barriers. So there's a lot of cultural barriers toward um, getting mental health treatment. Um, And so you see this across a lot of cultures around the world. Um, In America, I think... It's more prominent in um, cultures of color, but you also see it in um, dominant Caucasian culture as well. It's just not maybe as pronounced, Um, but all around the world, like I've got, I've got patients from different European countries. I've got patients from Asian countries and all around the world. And um, I found that the more um, uh, traditional cultures, like when even when people move here to the U.S., if they've got a more traditional cultural background and it's and it's uh, stronger within their family unit, then there tends to be more of a barrier to mental health. Right, right, right. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. So that's one. That's a really big hurdle for people to get over because oftentimes by the time they come and seek help. They're, you know, they've been suffering for a really long time and it's had a big impact on their life and on their function. Um, So it takes a lot of uh, bravery for them to come forward because they feel like in one sense, they feel like they're going against their family of origin by seeking help or they feel weak. So oftentimes there's a label of weakness or that you're crazy, you know, Mm -hmm. that there's something terribly wrong with you. But once they get to the point where they, they do seek help. um, I think the most important thing is good therapy. So talk therapy, Mm -hmm. whether, whether that's one-on-one therapy or group therapy, I think, um, and you know, and sometimes it takes a while to find a good therapist or, or a therapist that's a good fit for you because it might be an excellent therapist. It just right. might not be a perfect fit for you, right? Right. And so that's super important because just having someone that is honoring what you're saying and listening to you and supporting you in that way is, is really critical. Mm-hmm. Some people need medication. You know, sometimes right. it's so bad that people are at risk of harming themselves or others, mm-hmm. and they really do need to um, and try some psychiatric medication. Mm-hmm. But also, like, one of the things that's super important is just spending time with supportive people, if yeah. that's an option, if that's an option. Right. So that, that goes back to the healthy boundaries, you know, with potentially toxic family situations for some people. Mm-hmm. So things people can do is, like, 
you know, and, and all of this involves like planning ahead of time. It can help tremendously to limit the length of your stay yeah. or the stay of others. Like, you know, um, instead of someone staying for an entire month, that might be pushing your buttons right. and causing problems or whatever. Right. Um, stay for the Christmas no, okay, weekend. No, <laughs> okay, three days to a week or just whatever. Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, you know, so... That's a healthy boundary there. And then role playing with people that you trust and are supportive of you. Because a lot of times it's worrying about what someone's going to ask you or say to you. And what am I going to say back? How am right. I going to respond? Right. So role playing ahead of time. Practice. For yes. Yeah. <laughs> for predictable, uncomfortable situations. And then planning ahead for like temporary escapes out of the house. Like mm -hmm. instead of being trapped in a household of people who are like pushing your buttons and driving you, you know out of your mind, so to speak, right. um, you know, going on walks, volunteering to go to the store to get things, volunteering mm -hmm. to do some cooking so that you're kind of away from the main group. Yeah. Um, or just saying no to some unhealthy situations. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not going to go travel across the country this year to spend Thanksgiving or Christmas with you guys, you know, right. things like that. Right. Or no, I'm not going to play some big family game um, involving, you know, revealing personal, uh, information that I'm not comfortable revealing. Right, right. So for a lot of people, um, it's also mixing some enjoyable activities in with the difficult ones. Mm -hmm. So planning on going, you know, seeing a movie or taking time to yourself to mm -hmm. do some reading or journaling, writing or exercising. Okay. Like going for a run, going for a walk, right? I already said going for a walk, but right, that's yeah. one of them. But, you know, making um, sure you get out of the house and doing something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and also, like, planning ahead of time with friends or supportive people who aren't going to travel where you're going to travel. Right. Like, taking time for uh, phone calls, texting, or... Uh, you know, different social media connections, video gaming with them, you know, gaming um, with supportive people back home. Right. Um, so that you can basically it's take is getting a break from your situation. Right. Um, yeah. And then um, what else? Like things I don't know if you want to know about, like things that have helped me in my life to be able to deal with difficult I mean, situations. Totally, I don't know yeah, how much time I mean, we have I, left here. No, oh, I yeah. think so. Oh. I, I mean, because I, I think that, uh, like, even with the idea, even with what we were just talking about with what you were saying, is that, like, people go, go into these situations, and I love the term that you use, it's like predictable you know, um, situations that you know, because you know your family. You know what you're going into. Like, you know when you arrive, this is the, yeah. you know, blah, that's going to happen when you get there. So prepare yourself and, and practice yeah. your approach. Like, I think that right. is so important. Um, I think I've definitely, it's almost like the idea of like, you're being nervous and you're like, okay, I need to make sure I can do this like this. And then, you know, you're in the mirror like, okay, when she says it, don't feel bad about it. Don't feel bad about it. Like, you know, <laughs> like just go in there and stand your ground, be kind and just have a boundary. Like just... Not today. I'm going to go for a jog or, oh, I see we need some more wine. I'm going to go pick it up. I'll be happy to do that. Like, you know, and those type <laughs> of things can make you have a sense of control over the situation. And I think being um, uh, not feeling bad about feeling that uncomfortability, because this conversation was exactly that in that purpose was to make sure that everyone hearing this far and wide understand that like, most family, most people are having a situation in, during the holidays that make you feel a certain way where they're like, what should I do with this? That boundary yeah. Yeah. is so they important. Are definite, they are definitely not alone. You are Let's not alone. Let's put it alone. that way. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um yeah, so, go, tell me about tell tell me a solution that you thought that because I find that practicing works best for me. Like I practicing, and it's not necessarily just with my family, but like with any situation that I feel I'm going up against that I'm not. I know what's going to happen, and I and, and of course when I practice, it never goes exactly the way it was. But just because I practiced it, I feel better. <laughs> so that's oh, my yeah. yeah, that's my go to. And, what is your go to? And also, like you can coach yourself too. Yes. Like I have X number of days more 
in this place with these people. I can handle this, you know, just kind of coaching yourself along or planning a fun activity or a fun event um, after the holidays to look forward to. Right. So that you know that, you know, when you get through this difficult time, you're going to be able to do this fun thing afterwards. And um, there are also some like more humorous approaches because humor can often help tremendously. So instead of allowing, and, and you know, there are varying degrees of being able to do this. If you're in a truly traumatic situation, you're not going to be able to like laugh about it in the moment. But if it's not like terribly traumatic, it's just like a real drag and might, and might actually be pushing some mild trauma buttons for you. Um, You can, do an exercise that I use a lot with people I work with, Mm -hmm. which is imagining that whatever situation you're in that is really distressing to you Mm -hmm. and disturbing and you're taking very seriously, imagine that that's actually a scene that you're watching in a movie. It's not you. You're watching these characters in this movie scene. And oftentimes when we do that, when we watch other people going through the same exact thing, as we would find very disturbing if it were us going through it, it's really funny right, right on the right. screen. Right. You know what I mean? So right. that's a way to step outside yourself and actually find the situation interesting or mm-hmm. funny mm-hmm. or um, at least engaging in some way. Um, and so I find that like having people step outside of themselves just a little bit yeah. can be tremendously not a, not a disassociation. helpful. Right, not a disassociation, just a, right. Just not a, 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 <laughs> not a dissociation, exactly. <laughs> and, and and in that vein, I would say avoiding excessive alcohol and drugs would be an important tactic as well. I think that's a key because a lot of people will be like, "I'm just going to get drunk yeah. and it'll be fine," and I right. won't even be just there. get obliterated. Yeah. And, and you won't feel anything. You won't. Don't yeah, do that. No, I, Don't I would do say that. that's probably not the no, wisest. That's approach. not the way to go. <laughs> Because, yeah, you're you're not going to be in full control of your faculties in those situations. And right. We all know what can happen in those situations. Right? Yeah. And then you're talking um, and feeling about that until the springtime. So you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to, it's better to be present and it's better yes. and it's better to head it face on and have your own, yeah. your own, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Your own uh, agency in it. I right. think that's a lot of people, they like the same thing I was talking about as a little girl growing up here with the microaggressions is that we give our agency away, feeling like we don't have the power and the control. And the fact is, is that it's all about you. It's all about right. where, how you're standing on your two feet. So don't give away your agency. Don't give away your voice. You know, um, and right. Because basically with the microaggressions, the one of the things that that tends to happen is that you just feel like you don't have the right to exist. Right. And and that's the thing. When you don't have the right in, to be there. Right. You know? Right. Let right. alone have an opinion. Let alone have a voice of an opinion. Right. So people right. when they when they come in into their family's <laughs> family, even when it's aggressive, it's still that dynamic. Like uh, right. you know, you um, still have some control. You, you can do. still have some control over yourself and how you're interacting with people and how much time you're spending there and what you're doing when you're there and how so even though we can't control anybody else aside from ourselves right you can you can change your internal experience of the same exact event Mm -hmm. so you can experience it in a different way that's more manageable and more comfortable for you it's still not might not be fun right but but you can um but it can be easier to manage. Um, so, yeah. So other other things that people can do are, you know, read inspiring books. And, and this is, uh, you know, and that's the tactic I took just to deal with my, uh, the situations of my upbringing. Right. So I gravitated toward books by African and African-American authors like Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. you know, Alice Walker, Mildred Taylor, Zora Neale Hurston. Right. I mean, I could go on and on. Ralph right. Ellison, Cornell West, Frederick Douglass, right. Octavia Butler, Marcus Garvey. Right. I don't want to leave anybody out, but Angela <laughs> Davis, yeah, yeah. Tinwa Achebe and Jomo Kenyatta. And uh-huh. Alex Haley was a huge one. Wow. Root, you know, when I read Roots when I was 10 years old, that was great. 
that right. was very helpful for me. But anyway, you know, these are things people can do. Right. Um, to kind of, because when you're reading books, especially when you're a kid and you're reading books about people who are having similar experiences to the experiences that you're having or right. going through mm-hmm. and adults too. I don't want to leave adults out, but yeah, of course. Um, it, it, it lets you know that you're not alone and right. it can help you with coping strategies and you just feel like, Hey, there's other people like me, you know? Yeah. Going well, through these things. And I, I think that's like key and very important. And just like that, Catherine, uh, the hour is up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! I know. Okay. I, I, oh my god! Into, I know it goes so it goes by so fast. So oh, before, but can can I just say something about the in case of mental health crisis? We are absolutely going to do that. I was okay. just going to say, and before we go, I know you have some numbers and some uh, ha- like hotline um, uh, numbers to give out and people to understand that that, that please utilize therapy, utilize your friends that you trust, utilize the people that um, you know that. Other people who aren't going through things, let's be kind to each other through this holiday season. We don't know what anyone and everyone is going through. Give a smile to a stranger. Pass it on. It means the world. It changes people's whole day, uh, and it doesn't cost us anything. So um, so go ahead, Kathy, with the numbers and the suggestions that you have, and then we're going to wrap the show up. Okay, awesome. Okay, so in case of an actual mental health crisis or emergency, um, First of all, if you're just in a crisis and you're not going to hurt yourself or anybody else, you can call, like just what Aisha said, call a trusted support person and talk to them. If you don't have anybody, then you can, um, there's other uh, helplines that I'm going to talk about. But if you're actively suicidal or at risk of harming yourself or others, or even if you're not, you just really need somebody to talk to, there's the... Um, National Suicide Hotline, National Suicide Prevention Line. It's called all these different things. Mm -hmm. So it's called the National Suicide Hotline. It's also called the National Suicide Prevention Line and the Lifeline Chat. And the number there is 1-800-273-8255. And they are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, There's also a crisis text line that's associated with the National Suicide Hotline. So what you're going to do is text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. And um, there are also suicide crisis support lines for people who identify as LGBTQ. and those are also available 24-7. In particular, the one I'm familiar with is um, the Trevor Lifeline. It's also called the Trevor Line. And it um, stems out of the trevorproject.org. So if you look it up online, it's the Trevor, the trevorproject.org. And Trevor is T-R-E-V-O-R. Um, so they've got chat, they've got text, and they've got a phone line. And the number is one Also, if if it's bad enough, you can go to the nearest emergency room. You can call 911, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you need to, that's important. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of issues around police training around mental health. And so, especially if you're a person of color Mm -hmm. or or, or more severely mentally ill of any color, Mm-hmm. Um, it can be, you can, it can be, um, risky to do this. I don't right. want to tell people not to do this, but it's important to be aware that, yeah. you know, depending on the training of the police, right. uh, you may get, uh, varying responses to calling 911 and having the police assess you. And we have here during- in Eugene, we have cahoots, which is a mental health, um, like a, like a, a service that will go out instead of the police or with the police. And they are trained to work with mental health um, crisis. And so you, if you're in that situation that uh, Catherine is describing, cahoots would be the first, first way to go. Right. For sure. Yeah. That's an important point. So like many cities have mobile crisis, like mobile mental health crisis support teams mm-hmm. that, um, I would recommend calling them before you call 911 if there's an option. If there's an option, exactly. We're not saying be in danger, there's guns going places. And, exactly. And, and, call 911 yeah. if you have sense. to, by all means. Right. But if there's an option to call uh, like a crisis support team first, then I would do that. Right. Also, there's local intensive outpatient programs. 
um, partial hospitalization programs that are usually affiliated with hospitals, but mm -hmm. not always. Right. Um, and if you suspect that a friend, a family member, or a loved one is depressed, um, please reach out and ask. Don't right. be afraid to ask if somebody is suicidal. There's a myth that you're going to increase their risk of committing suicide or actually, you know, acting on suicidal thoughts right. if if you talk about it. But it's it's actually the opposite. It's often a relief to the person who can then talk about their feelings and get help rather than just act out physically, you know, in isolated desperation, you know. Um, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a and good then, point. And oftentimes that will lead to them actually getting help just by talking about it. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Catherine, you have been amazing. Um, that I'm so happy. And I hope that everyone uh, was able to write those, uh, those uh, numbers down and get those names. If not, um, I think maybe what I'll do is get those numbers from you, Kathy, and put it on to my web onto my Facebook page. And uh, this will also be rebroadcasted on my, um, on my podcast, Black Girl from Eugene. That can be heard on any platform that podcast can be heard and you'll be able to listen to that again. Um, and I should be able to post it by the midweek. Um, I hope that everyone has a wonderful holiday season and please take note of what was said here today. Um, if therapy is needed, go get it. Um, Catherine, did you have <laughs> anything else to say? Um, I just want to say that it was, it was a pleasure to be on your show thank and you. <laughs> very fun. And, um, thank you all for listening. Yeah. And if you want to check out Kathy, Hopefully it was helpful in some way. I, I'm sure it was somebody, some, someone <laughs> out there. No. Um, I, and if you want to learn more about Kathy and her practice, uh, check her out on peninsula mental health. Is it .com or .org? It's www.peninsulamh, as in mental health, M like Mary, H like Henry, mm -hmm. dot com. So www.peninsulamh.com. Excellent. Okay, so Kat, if you could hold on for a second, I'm going to put you on hold while I end, wrap up the show. And I'm going to say bye to everyone on Facebook Live. I'm going to say bye. Say bye. <laughs> and, um, and I will uh, go ahead and move this on to the next uh, little part of the, the show here. This was excellent, and I hope that everyone really enjoyed it, and I'm pretty sure they did. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend and the week, Eugene. If you like what you hear on KEPW, 